great news for Canadian space fans to begin our show this morning. Lots of chatter on on the news these days about people willing to pay millions of dollars to go for a ride on Jeff Bezos' spacecraft. Uh, Richard Branson in the wings with one of his own. Lots more of that stuff coming on. And now we have news from Nova Scotia, Canada, that a company called Maritime Launch Services wants to construct a rocket launching site at Canso to send satellites into orbit for near-Earth imaging, communications, and scientific experiments. The good news is that this project, Maritime Launch Services, has just received some great funding from a Toronto investment firm. Stephen Matier is the president and CEO of Maritime Launch Services and joins us this morning. Stephen, thanks for joining us, and good morning. Good morning to you as well. I'm a pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you. This is exciting news. Uh, why Canso, and where is Canso, for the benefit of those British Columbians, Stephen, who aren't quite familiar with Nova Scotia geography? In the, in the, in the main peninsula of Nova Scotia, on the very upper eastern tip, uh, is a community of Canso, Hazel Hill, and Little Dover. And that's where we have cited the location for the spaceport. And mm-hmm. to, to answer why Canso is, is exactly what they describe their community as. It's not the end of the earth, but you can see it from there. So uh-huh. what better place to uh, launch rockets over the ocean than in a location just like that? And what sort of rockets? Now, uh, the idea is to begin construction soon. Now that you've put together a, a financing package, you can talk about that in a second, Stephen. But what's the timeline here? Uh, and what sort of satellites do you anticipate launching first? So the uh, timeline is working towards a groundbreaking in September. We have a number of pieces of environmental compliance pieces, uh, documents to finish up. We received our approval uh, from the Nova Scotia Environment uh, Department to go forward with the project, but they gave us a fairly lengthy list of of things that we need to do uh, before we break ground. So we're aggressively working on that over the next 90 to 100 days and looking at a groundbreaking in uh, September timeframe and getting the initial roads cut in. At the end of the day, uh, the the larger class launch vehicle, it's called a, a medium class launcher, uh, can carry up to about five tons of satellites into low Earth orbit. And that is the real niche, I think, that people are really, the satellite community is really excited about, is that this isn't like the dozens of small launchers that are out there trying to get going or are getting going with mm-hmm. 150, 200 kilogram kinds of capacities. We've got a five-ton capacity with a launch vehicle that's uh, nearly complete already, uh, based on heritage design from uh, our colleagues and suppliers in Ukraine. So that's really great for the Constellation market. So you can get 20 or 30 150-kilogram satellites on board one mission, for example, and that's really attractive to uh, the, the community out there, the satellite community, and what we're able to do with uh, that payload capacity. Interesting stuff. So, Steve, that would be the pitch that you would have had to make uh, in terms of uh, a finding and putting together this venture capital funding uh, to to bankroll this project. Clearly, uh, there are people in the uh, venture capital or financing industry who are very excited by this. So I guess what the, the, the question that, that remains for a lot of us is how much uh, how viable a commercial enterprise do you expect this to become? 
it, it'll, it is an extremely viable commercial enterprise as a uh, offering the launch services from our colleagues in Ukraine is only one aspect of it. We've been reached out to by easily a half a dozen other launch vehicle developers that have interest uh-huh. in the site, which essentially validates the model, if you will. Yep, mm-hmm. the location's great, the inclinations are great, polar, sun synchronous, all the directions that you can launch a satellite from that location, which is really attractive, uh, has the interest of not just satellite uh, developers, but also other launch vehicle manufacturers. So that that is truly a nice piece of this uh, validation puzzle for us, for sure. And a final question to you, Stephen. Will there be room, eventually, once all the construction phases have been completed, will there be room? Do you anticipate a kind of a Cape Canaveral environment down there, uh, down the road, to the point where it becomes a tourist destination with, uh, with large numbers of people assembling to watch these spectacular liftoffs? Without a doubt, uh, I can. I get dozens of emails per week, frankly, from coast to coast, uh, people that are anxious, interested in coming out to see uh, the launches. That's that's uh, you know private citizens, government, and when people realize what a jewel we have here in Nova Scotia as an, another ocean playground uh, with all the offerings that come with it, it it's uh, very little doubt that uh, we'll be. Uh, filling up hotel rooms with interested people. And the typical stay out here is, you know, seven to 10 days when you have a a three-day launch window and you want to get here early to get your spots and then you want to explore the province afterward. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, it'll it'll turn into quite a, a... uh, a tourism opportunity, as well as the the you know economic development that comes from people that want to now build satellites here, or test satellites here, or support the manufacturing that's going to be going on in support of what we launch into space. Interesting stuff. I said this was going to be exciting news for Canadian space fans, Steve, and you didn't disappoint, not for one single second. We wish you considerable success, sir, and we'll check back with you as this project unfolds. Thanks for doing this with us this morning. Very much my pleasure. Thank you very much. There's Stephen Matier, the president and CEO of Maritime Launch Services. Yep, we're going to get a space pad in Nova Scotia, Canada. In, in actually a relatively short speaking uh, period of time. It'll be uh, first launch expected in 2022, late 22. It'll be a little one, but it'll off they go. Currently, vaccine passports are presented as relatively simple technological solutions to our current travel woes. However, warns our next guest, like biometrics, vaccine passports will likely become permanent parts of our daily lives. So that means meaningful public debate and discussion about their merits and problems is essential. This is part of an article available to you right now at theconversation.com. The article is entitled, Why We Need to Seriously Reconsider COVID-19 Vaccination Passports. One of the co-authors is Dr. Benjamin Muller, who is an associate professor in political science and sociology and King's College at the University of Western Ontario in London. And joining us now is Dr. Ben Miller. Good morning, sir. Welcome to the program. Interesting stuff. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us, Dr. Muller. Uh, this whole business of the uh, assumption, I think, by the vast majority of Canadians right now that this passport thing is inevitable, would you agree that most Canadians are on side without really arguing or talking much about the details of uh, just recognizing the need for some kind of vehicle to connect us back to the rest of the world? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I think at this point in time, uh, there's there's such a big drive for people to want to return to travel that, you know, to an extent, people may be willing to accept almost anything. And, and the, the devil may be in the details, but folks aren't really that concerned maybe with those details. They just want to get on a plane and go. Exactly. Short of a tattoo on your forehead, uh, people are ready to put up with just about anything, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, very, very much. And I think, you know, to be honest, that's a little bit um, why we sort of drew on the comparison with, with post 9-11, because it was a similar feeling. You know, people wanted to return to some sort of normality when it comes sure. to travel. But, of course, 9-11 and all of us uh, recognize immediately the dramatic impact that had on all our lives for the, the citizens of the world, Ben. This is, this is nothing, uh, this was a, a life-changing scenario. And, and as a result of that and, and the corresponding security requirements that came out of it, we really did. This is when biometrics and other surveillance technology became a big deal. So can you take a second and talk about the kinds of technologies that the post 9-11 world now includes and why so many of us are so okay with all of them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when I, I started doing uh, research on biometrics um, just around the time um, of 9-11 and their kind of impact on citizenship and immigration. And at that time, when I said biometrics, the vast majority of people I spoke to had, had literally no idea what I'm talking about. Sure. Yeah. Um, Whereas now, I mean, probably most of us, the listeners, you know, actually engage with biometrics on a daily basis through our, our phones or our laptop computers. Um, and in terms of the fact that all of our passports now use biometrics within them, um, which have then enabled a whole different kind of travel and border experience. So, for example, for many Canadians who now use a kiosk in an airport. Um, these things have all been enabled by those technologies, mm -hmm. uh, things like Nexus as well, that allows us a, a more rapid uh, transit through the United, into the United States. Mm -hmm. Again, the, these programs rely on forms of those identification technologies, as well as surveillance and, and pre-assessment of our risk. And that's all just become completely normal now to, to most of us. So uh, talk a little bit for a second, if you would, Dr. Muller, about this, uh, this pre-assessment of risk. This is all about uh, facial recognition technology. And you, you talk in your article, uh, you and Tommy, talk about the, the sorting capabilities that biotechnology provides. Talk a little bit about that, because risk does come back into that, that uh, description. Absolutely. I mean, whenever we're talking about any kind of surveillance, um, you know, we have to think about, like, what is the purpose of that? And in many cases, what it's trying to do is determine, you know, levels of risk. Uh, so we, we know, for example, certain kinds of behavior that we would see in a bank would be that would determine risk, whereas that kind of behavior at an amusement park perhaps would not. Sure. And so, you know, th those are really like crude forms. But of course, when we're talking about something like like a Nexus card, for example, well, what's interesting about that is, of course, you enroll in this program, a trusted traveler program um, between Canada and the United States, and your actually risk is being assessed regularly without your knowledge. Mm -hmm. So you don't even necessarily realize that on a Wednesday morning, your file has come up in an office somewhere and your risk is again being assessed. 
And that ongoing assessment is what allows you to then go to the border and have quite a fluid experience there sure, because yep. the assessment has happened before. So and, the, and so, I mean, that's sort of all become, I think, again, perhaps normalized, but I would also argue that to the vast majority of people, I think it's simply gone under the radar. That, I that agree. Folks are actually, are actually not that aware of how much of this is going on. I mean, when we book an airline ticket on, online, if it's in Canada and we're going to another Canadian destination, chances are we cross into U.S. airspace and therefore we're being assessed by U.S. authorities. We just click a few boxes so they get off our screen and we can move along with the experience. But that's happening. And that's sort of all become a sort of part and parcel of this new experience um, of ah. travel. And I think, you know, vaccine passports are, are in some sense going to plug into that. But I think there's actually more to, to sort of be concerned and to discuss about vaccine passports than simply that. Well, I think, as you just pointed out, Ben, I think a lot of Canadians will just uh, are not particularly concerned about the details, the, the technical minutiae, as we would tend to categorize them, of, of the whys and wherefores of, of what goes on when we cross a border or, or do those uh, what we consider perfectly normal activities. Uh, and, but and, and I think most Canadians just sort of put that in under the general heading of whatever, you know, do what you got to do. Just get out of my way. I'm going on holidays. And we don't, and we're quite prepared almost to just shuffle it aside without a great deal of discussion. And this is a flaw in our decision-making process, especially as we add yet another layer with vaccine passports. Yes? Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the major, the flaw usually in, on all of this only gets exposed when something goes wrong. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when we, for example, in 2013, a woman tried to fly from Toronto Airport to the United States to get on a cruise and was denied entry. And the basis of that denial was the fact that she had been admitted to a mental health facility one year before. I mean, all of a sudden, when that story hits, people think, oh, my goodness, how do wow. U.S. authorities know my mental health history? Why are they exactly, making yeah. judgments on that basis? That's when it suddenly people care. But when those things don't happen, then I, I would agree with you. People tend to just say, oh, I'm not going to get caught up in that so long as my holiday can go forward. Well, yeah. And, and it's interesting because uh, we, we think of vaccine passports, Ben, as crossing over into health information. And yet this is this is well before any kind of vaccine passports. And here's a woman who had a, a, a health issue noted on her file and was denied entry. That's spooky. That's just plain spooky, isn't it? Absolutely. Spooky is uh, maybe an understatement. <laughs> we are looking at the subject of vaccine passports, a much talked about subject all over this country these days. As we gradually begin to emerge from the pandemic, Ontario and Quebec got their reopening map. Yes, oh, just going into this weekend, British Columbians get ours on Tuesday. And of course, uh, travel is very much a priority for millions and millions of Canadians uh, following this long protracted series of lockdowns and restrictions on mobility. So the piece we're talking about this morning is available to you and check it out at theconversation.com. It's entitled why we need to seriously reconsider 
COVID-19 Passports, co-authored by Drs. Tommy Cook at Queen's University and our guest, Dr. Ben Muller from the University of Western Ontario, where he is a professor of political science and sociology. Ben, how do you think this is going to shake out? As, as I read the article, you and Tommy seem to think that unlike the International Certificate of Vaccination, which we used to carry along with our passports when we went to continents like Africa in the past, you suspect that going forward, the International Vaccination Certificate will be carried by people on our phones. Why? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, something again, in, in terms of the comparison from, from 9-11 and, and the response to that is that, that we're now in a, in a digital age and, you know, both in terms of governments and private industry, it's a lot easier for the sharing of data and management of that through other means. And, and if we think of even contact tracing, this is done, you know, through an app, there's already kind of a way forward to, to develop things along those lines. And it's a mm-hmm. lot easier for that to exist across different states. I, I just, you know, having a piece of paper when our actual passports really aren't even pieces of paper theoretically anymore because of the digital data within them. True. I think that uh, it's safe to assume that a, a little card is not sort of where we're going to be headed. Ah, okay. And, and, and makes sense. I was just curious as to what you were thinking of in terms of the rationale. And, and talk to us a little bit about the folks on GitHub and what they're up to in terms of the design contributions they're hoping to make. Yeah, I mean, something we saw like after 9-11 was that there was a, a few very slow-moving large corporations that were trying to roll out biometric and surveillance solutions to states to solve their problems. Things are dramatically different now, I think, as, as most of us realize. And, and what is happening is, and we saw this with the development of, of the contact tracing app, that effectively individuals are kind of freelancing uh, on a space like GitHub and, and trying to develop apps um, for our phones that will do the things we want them to do. Mm-hmm. And, and what happens when they do that is they have to access things that are called APIs. Um, application programming interfaces, which are kind of like a toolbox for the app developer. But those toolboxes are not made in a neutral way, and they're actually really only made by by Google and Apple effectively. So there's a limited amount of sort of tools that you get to choose, and they make the app function in particular ways. And Mm -hmm. part of those ways has to do with constantly drawing or seeking more data and more information. And a lot of that sort of level of the development of this technology seems to, at least thus far, kind of fly out beyond the radar of our privacy commissions at both the provincial and federal level. And, and this is something that, that's kind of worrying, where, where that, the level of our kind of data and where it's flowing and how it's flowing at that level is not something that seems to be easily uh, accessible to those oversight uh, organizations. And I think that's that's part of the difference, a very, very different world in terms of how these will develop and our capacity for the oversight on those. 
Right. And uh, you're right. Michael McAvoy, the British Columbia Privacy Commissioner, has joined his peers across the country in notifying the federal government that they are concerned about privacy matters, Ben, and and rightly so. So the Prime Minister of Canada has been dragging his heels on vaccine passports. Therefore, Canada is not at the front of the tip of the spear, so to speak, in terms of international negotiations about a, an acceptable format that, uh, will, that will work. You can take your phone with whatever data is required to any border crossing or airport in the world and they'll go okay come on in so uh, because we're not at the very vanguard of the of the negotiating process we're likely to just sort of take what we're offered by international agreement so who is leading the international process of uh, coming up with something the world can use well, there's been a, a lot of development, as, as you might not be surprised to hear, within the European Union, because, you know, you you want to have uh, a fair bit of travel. It's kind of essential to the system there, in sure, a sense, yeah. to have flowing uh, people and goods and so on. And so there, they're what they call the green certificate is something um, that, that's reasonably well developed. But I think, you know, in all cases, there's it's it's sort of the the cart before the horse issue i mean everybody wants to get going sure um how much uh sort of you know resources will people put behind this what where to whom like who should we be looking i mean the fact that canada is, is sort of bumbling around this is again similar to what we did after 9-11 and the problem is then yeah you tend to just get handed what's out there exactly um, and it may not be what you actually really wanted um, and, and to me, the, the problem is, you know, we're going to, in that sense, just then quickly grab hold of something because we want to be able to access travel. And what other things are we going to grab hold of? Because I think the other point is, and uh, folks, I'm sure, are hearing this in the media regularly, it's almost misleading to call this a passport because I think we recognize that, you know, I don't use my passport when I go to a hockey game. Right, but it's pretty likely that that this might be used when I go to a hockey game or we're talking or about it events. in Vancouver. You're right, Ben. We're talking about Canucks games in the fall. Doctor Bonnie Henry says I'm looking forward to seeing them. So it's entirely possible that you may have to produce some kind of proof of vaccination to go to a Canucks game this fall. Not out of the question at all. Are you okay with that? Yeah, I mean, I. For me, that's kind of the issue that gets into what, what the literature we call function creep, where effectively what everybody says you're designing something for, it starts getting used for a whole series of unintended purposes. Exactly. And, and often by, by other agents. So, you know, suddenly, you know, you may be okay or you may not be with, you know, customs and border protection having access to your personal data. How, how, okay are you with g4s private security corporation mm -hmm. the large global transnational corporation who is going to access your data likely who mans sort of the doors at many of these events yeah uh, so those are those are different conversations and i think again that's where like the the title passport's a little misleading because i think this is going to have a much broader application and as a result a much wider array of potential exposures for our private data
Indeed. And you make the point, and I think it's an entirely valid one. You and Tommy say that concerns over vaccine passports are sometimes conflated with anti-mask and anti-vaccination sentiments, and that simply is not true. It's okay to worry about your personal data being abused by people you you don't want it to see. That has nothing to do with anti-mask or anti-vax sentiment. That's privacy concerns, and that's a big one. So how do you think, I'm, I'm out of time, Ben, unfortunately. Unfortunately, this is a fascinating conversation. And as this rolls out, we're going to have to have you back as as more developments come along and perhaps the Canadian passport becomes a little clearer. But how do you think it's going to shake out in Canada and how quickly do you think we're going to come to some kind of agreement on uh, something to use? Uh, uh, my, My hunch is that people are going to be surprised that suddenly something will simply be rolled out. Uh, There won't have been a whole lot of public discussion Uh, about it uh, and people will simply latch on because it's going to be, you know, it's better to take the bus that's here than wait for the one that you're not sure is going to arrive. Aha. Uh-huh. So it's going to be take what you get. And uh, if, and the less debate, the, the more likely we are to be unhappy with what we get. But again, if it gets us on a plane, a lot of us will put up with it, for, at least for a while. Dr. Mueller, thanks for this this morning, sir. It's great to have you on the program. Very, en- very enjoyable conversation too, Ben. And as this subject continues, uh, we'd like to have you back. Are you okay with that? Great. It's been Good a pleasure stuff. and I'd love to come back. Excellent. Well, thanks, Dr. Muller. Great to have you on board this morning. Dr. Ben Muller joining us from University of Western Ontario, King's College, where he teaches sociology and political science. Yes, vaccination passports are not going to go away. They are going to be our ticket to freedom. That's the deal for so many Canadians. The question is, how much are we putting, are willing to put up with to pay for that ticket? Canadians looking to buy homes will face stiffer mortgage tests in just a few days as the feds and a national regulator tighten rules in the wake of new warnings from the central bank that households right across Canada are piling on too much debt. And after a year of record double-digit declines... Consumer insolvencies are on the rise again in Canada. The latest data released by the Office of the Superintendent of Bankruptcy show that the biggest monthly increase in more than a decade happened just this last March, as in uh, March this year. Here to talk about it, and it's always a pleasure to welcome Jennifer back to our program, Senior Manager from BDO First Call Debt Solutions, Insolvency Trustee Jennifer McCracken. Jennifer, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. So this is uh, this is something that you and I have been talking about now on the radio since the pandemic began. Uh, the the whole notion of uh, of reduced circumstances, uh, whether it's working from home and you're still able to realize a paycheck, which is good in many cases. Though Jen, it's not the case. People have had their uh, either their income completely eliminated or dramatically reduced hours and so on. So as, as you've been warning for well over a year, uh, w- without contingency plans and the ability to pivot under these circumstances, uh, some households are going to be in some time kind of trouble. And sure enough, it turns out March was a record year. Tell us more about what you know about the March numbers, Jennifer. 
Yes, so specifically for BC, we did see that there was a 31% increase in bankruptcy filings and a 20% increase in uh, consumer proposals. And you're correct, we saw record lows post-pandemic. It was very surprising. Industry experts would not have anticipated that. Uh, We do know that Canadians are carrying record levels of debt. And they report, um, for years now, they've been reporting that they live paycheck to paycheck. So the thought with these numbers in March, we saw an increase in every province across the country, is that there is a bit of a backlog emerging. So the folks that maybe were considering filing post-pandemic, maybe they were surviving a bit on the government stimulus, there were credit uh, deferrals, and now that is all starting to run out, and we're really seeing them take those concerted steps to deal with their debt. So that is a bit of the thought on this recent increase. It's the first month that we've seen it increase since the pandemic, and yeah. uh, we're going to wait to see if it continues. Yeah, and, and it's possible, Jennifer, that as you predicted uh, many months ago, that people will do whatever they can possibly do to keep their heads above water. And, and after a certain amount of time, uh, the ability to maintain that position just goes away. So maybe we're seeing the net results of people doing the very best they could and simply running out of the ability to to maintain that even that level of, of of financial activity so this may be just the result of months and months of trying and all of a sudden not being able to to hang in there anymore I agree with you and the other thing I'm seeing in my practice is that we're seeing an increase in collection activity so a good ah. majority of my clients are dealing with aggressive collection Files have been referred to third-party collectors, and it's not just one account. So, you, I, And I frequently have meetings with people where they're getting phone calls from collectors during the meeting, and I'm, I'm definitely seeing an increase, and we know that the deferrals did run out. And so I think you know that pressure is very intense, and we're already very stressed right now anyway with the pandemic. Sure. And in my practice alone, I can see that that is really pushing people to reach out to a trustee. They would say, you know, I don't feel like I, I would really be doing this filing, but I just I can't handle the phone calls anymore. It's too much. It's disruptive. They're getting it at work and they need that break and that creditor relief. So certainly that is a piece um, of, of the puzzle here right now. And, and you as an ins- a licensed insolvency trustee have the ability once you take on a client uh, and begin to help that individual reorganize his or her personal life and finances, you have the ability uh, to, to immediately stop all of those calls and all of that harassment. But can we take a second, please, Jennifer, this morning and talk about those calls and talk about the fact that so many people's files have been handed by their credit card or their banks or whatever to these third-party collection agencies. Some of the practices that are pulled by these agencies, and I put that in quote, are pretty borderline. And some people will tell you, you've had people getting getting calls from collectors while they're sitting in your office trying to figure out their finances. So can we talk a little bit about exactly what these people are allowed to get away with versus what they try to get away with? Well, that is a wonderful question because I'm also seeing a change in tactics. So I'm finding that um, any client of mine that has provided a name of, um, you know, an emergency contact, so it could be a child, it could be a sibling, those individuals are receiving phone calls to collect on their debt. And, And certainly individuals do need to know what their rights are. In BC, there are provincial rules around debt collection. And for anybody that is struggling with the phone calls, you actually can send 
to any collector a notice to state that all collection activity, all correspondence must be in writing. You can actually request that those calls stop. Once you've issued that communication, if they don't respect it, you actually can report them to the authorities. It's Consumer Protection BC. And Consumer Protection BC actually has a lot of information on their website to talk a little bit about um, you know, what the rules are, what collectors can do, what they can't do. One of the biggest um, issues, though, is, is individuals wanting to find a mechanism and a way just to stop the calls. And, and sure. that's the first and easiest uh, approach I advise my clients. Interesting. Short of uh, taking on and, and becoming a client of an, of an insolvency trustee like yourself and, and the gang at BDO First Call, uh, individuals can, uh, on their own, uh, attempt at least to reduce the, the calls from these third-party collection agencies, and there are mechanisms to do it here in B.C., that's right. And the other thing to keep in mind is that um, a lot of my clients have a misconception. You know, if a collector says to them, I'm going to go garnish your wages, there yeah. is a legal process that they have to follow. So a lot of people think immediately that they can just send some sort of notice and um, their wages will be garnished. But there, there is a legal process for, an in, for a creditor to actually get a garnishing order to garnish somebody's pay. So that's the other uh, piece I see a lot in my practice is that there's a misconception that you can just immediately within a week you know, they're going to send something to my work and, um, you know, 30% of my wages will be taken. That's not the case. There actually is a legal process creditors have to follow. So you do want to take um, any conversation uh, with a collection agency with a grain of salt and do your own research because, you know, their goal is to get compel you to pay, compel you to make that payment. And um, there's a lot of things, a lot of strategies they have um, at their disposal to to cause such concern that you'll you'll do whatever you can just to stop the phone call. And certainly, the threat of a wage garnishment is a pretty big deal. <laughs> so people tend to respond to that. So I certainly encourage folks to understand that um, they can't just turn around and garnish your pay in a week. They have to go to court, they have to sue, they have to get a judgment, and then they have to obtain a garnishing order. Yeah, the, the, of course, the other, the other problem is, and, and, and in some regards, it, they, they're supposed to be, it's what they do, but these people are pretty accomplished on the phone. They're pretty slick and they're pretty polished in terms of being able to issue threatening messages and, you know, you better pay up or else, and uh, it can get pretty heavy duty pretty fast. And, and again, does the individual because you owe money and now you know that now the my my visa card now that now i've got this abc collection company in toronto after me on top of visa oh rats now what do i do uh i mean it, 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 and again they're pretty persuasive on those phone calls jennifer and and very intimidating as well uh, it, you can't just hang up can you no and and you know the thing i advise a lot of my clients is that Reaching out to a licensed insolvency trustee and understanding what your rights are, understanding what the creditor's rights are, is going to put you in a good place because all trustees offer a free initial meeting. And for a lot of my clients, after they meet with me, they, I will tell them, you can go back now if you have any collection calls, tell them you've met with a licensed insolvency trustee. If they're planning to file a consumer proposal or bankruptcy, tell them your plans. Keep those lines of communication open, and a lot of right. times the collection activity will drop off. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that um, a lot of individuals are on an automated call cycle, and it can be challenging to, to get a body and a person at the other end of the call. A lot of the calls are automated. So sure. if that's the case, it's a, re- a request to, you know, phoning in directly to the company, actually speaking to an agent, and having the conversation with them. A lot of times, you know, people hear your story, you know, they'll put notes on the file, 
Um, if they know you're about to proceed uh, with an insolvency filing, they'll, they'll pull back some of that activity. So there is sure, an opportunity to get relief immediately after you've met with a licensed insolvency trustee. Prior to the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, record increases in consumers' insolvency filings were being reported. When the pandemic hit, government stimulus and payment deferrals gave debtors an opportunity to pause. But government aid is winding down, deferrals have ended, and collectors are now looking for payment. The spike in insolvencies indicate Canadians who have been struggling with debt and feeling the added financial strain of the pandemic have may reached their tipping points. Here to talk more about it is licensed insolvency trustee and senior manager with BDO First called Debt Solutions, Jennifer McCracken, back with us on CKNW Weekend Mornings. And Jennifer, we've been talking about pressure from uh, creditors, those people who get handed your file when you default with your credit cards or other loans or financial arrangements, and and how sometimes the pressure that that creates, that they, they don't, and they're pretty good pressure makers, uh, can really uh, be a person's psychological tipping point. And this is where we get into serious problems. You point out quite accurately that any licensed insolvency trustee, part of your mandate is to hear, to provide a, fir, a, a, a free consultation, a, an upfront interview to just sit down with someone who knows the ropes and go, man, am I hooped. What can I do? That doesn't cost anything, does it? No, it doesn't. And, you know, part of our license um, with the superintendent of bankruptcy's office is that we are going to walk an individual through what all their options are. And many times I meet with somebody that doesn't actually need to proceed with a consumer proposal or bankruptcy, but I'm able to walk that person through their budget, talk to them about dealing with their creditors, how they could perhaps go back to their bank and, and refinance their situation and uh, really be on a plan to be debt-free. A trustee will review all of the formal options, so we would call those statutory options, but we also review the non-statutory. So what are some of the things that you can do now to deal with your debt and to make your finances better and improve your situation? And so that's why we really want folks to reach out and have those conversations. We're licensed. Uh, We are individuals that um, are going to, to give you very balanced and fair information, and we want you to know what your rights are Um, If you're struggling with debt. Yeah, and it's it's so important to just have an understanding because, again, you can get pretty bamboozled by some of these high-pressure uh, chatterboxes on the t- telephone lines from these collection agencies. Jennifer, you've talked about two proposed or two uh, uh, solutions. Uh, you've talked about bankruptcy, of course, and something called a consumer proposal. What's the difference between the two? Well, the consumer proposal is uh, an option that uh, a lot of individuals choose instead of bankruptcy if they have the financial capacity to to make a payment to their creditors um, over a period of time. So it really is just a settlement arrangement um, with where the trustee, uh, on their behalf, negotiates the settlement with the creditors. Typically, we're offering um, a monthly amount over a period of five years, and the individual is paying less than the amount that's owed. But there's no interest on that amount because, of course, once they file, the creditor protection's in place. So we call that right. a day of proceedings. So the debt level freezes. And once the amount is negotiated, it becomes like a court-sanctioned agreement uh, with their creditors so that all they have to do is make the proposal payment and complete two financial counseling sessions, and they'll get a full discharge of their debt. 
bankruptcy also is a mechanism to to get a discharge, but it is one where um, the the process is a little bit more rigorous with respect to duties, and um, you know individuals will do financial reporting and uh, work uh, with the trustee over um, a, a mandated period of time. Um, and again, once they fulfill their duties, they'll get a full discharge. So the consumer proposal just tends to offer a bit more flexibility uh, for individuals, um, and it is more gentle to their credit rating. So a lot of individuals will do a proposal filing sort of knowing that it's a bit more flexible, there's no financial reporting required uh, during the process, and then it, they don't have as a severe rating on their credit score once they've filed the proposal. So I'm willing um, to bet, a trustee Jennifer. will walk you through that. Yeah, I'm, I'm willing to bet that a lot of people who come to a, a trustee's office such as yours and just sort of, you know, they're just so down in the dumps and so harassed and so at their wits end. I've come to you to file formal bankruptcy papers. I'm done. I'm cooked. It's over. And you sit down, you take a look at their, their numbers and go, you don't have to go bankrupt. Why don't we try this? And, and a lot of people are going, I don't. I can do this. I bet you a consumer proposal that option surprises more than a few folks. Oh, absolutely, Sterling. Um, I mean, I've had some of my clients say that when they've talked to their friends and family about their proposal that they don't believe them, that, oh, this can't be true that you've been able to do this. And it's, you know, it's unfortunate that more Canadians aren't aware that there is this process available where they don't have to do a bankruptcy. They are able to negotiate a settlement, reduce their debt, and people's lives improve so substantially. I know we're not meeting people face-to-face, but I can tell you, you know, pre-pandemic, Physically, my clients change. They look different. And we cannot underestimate the level of stress that people have and the impacts to their health, their well-being. And once you're on that plan and you've avoided bankruptcy, you're on a payment plan to get that debt discharge. I always say to my clients, you're on a five-year plan to be Mm debt-free. And it gives you, you know, excitement and you, you have, you know, hope for the future. And it's that financial fresh start that, Canadians are all entitled to have, and more people should be aware that that process is out there. Don't be ashamed and embarrassed. You know, it's there to give you that fresh start, and we want Canadians thriving. And so if that's a process you need, talk to a trustee. And you're gonna, your life is going to improve if you, you take that approach. Jennifer, it's always just a real treat to have you come on the program. You provide such a calm, reassuring uh, view of the world, uh, especially for for folks who are having some financial difficulties. The world is looking pretty grim this morning. Thanks for helping smooth the waters a little bit. And friends, if you need to get a hold of Jennifer, she is available. Uh, You can Google BDO First Call Debt Solutions in Vancouver, and there you can find Jennifer McCracken. In a world of USB wall outlets and universal charging cables, it can be easy easy to forget that not too long ago we could often be found roaming our houses in search of fresh AA batteries, disposable power sources for our non-rechargeable gadgets, sometimes giving up and stealing them from the TV remote. The single-use batteries many of us still use in said remotes, not to mention alarm clocks, flashlights, and smoke detectors, work thanks to chemicals stored in the negative and positive ends of the battery, which react with each other and create a flow of electrical energy. Well, once those chemicals run out, you're back on the hunt for a fresh power source. So back in 1991, the first commercial lithium-ion batteries hit the market. Rechargeable batteries became a thing and a part of our lives in an amazingly quick way. This brings us to our next guest, the author of a report at The Walrus entitled The Hidden Cost 
of rechargeable batteries. A pleasure to welcome Caitlin Stahl-Paquette to the program. Caitlin joining us from Montreal today. Caitlin, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Hi. It's great to have you with us. How long did you did you take to uh, to work on this project before you filed it at uh, the Walrus? Um, it was a process of a few months, I would say. I'm not exactly. I can't exactly remember all the details. I want to say about three months. Mm-hmm. We're. Uh, it's very interesting, Caitlin, because in one hour's time, we're going to be doing a feature with automotive journalist Jeremy Cato from the Globe and Mail mm-hmm. about e cars. Jeremy's a big e car guy, and of course, the, the thing about e cars going forward will be the batteries they're going to use, and Tesla's going to make their own, and Volvo's going to make their own, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But it all boils down to the rechargeable battery, doesn't it? One way or another, uh, whatever the the e, the electric vehicles of the future end up being they're going to run on rechargeable batteries aren't they yes absolutely and yeah it's a growing market worldwide everywhere right now well and you point out in your article here too caitlin that uh, the lithium battery well they're big business the global industry was valued at 37 billion bucks back in 2019 and is predicted mm-hmm. to go up to 130 billion by 2027 that is huge where is most of this lithium for these rechargeable batteries coming from is it canada not most of it but there certainly are a lot of uh, re- Lithium reserves here in Canada as well, mostly in Quebec, which is currently the only place that has active lithium mines, but it comes from all over. It comes from Australia, it comes from Chile, um, China. There are plenty of uh, countries that are mining it. In your report, Caitlin, the hidden cost of rechargeable batteries, the subheader is a burgeoning lithium mining area in Quebec shows the complications of green tech. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about what you found in the months you took putting this together. What do you mean by complications? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there obviously um, lithium is a non-renewable resource, so we're mining it out of the ground, um, and a lot of the times that can affect the natural habitats surrounding it. So in this case specifically, uh, it was in proximity to an esker, uh, which is an old geological formation, and there was a lot of concern about the effect that it would have on the esker long term. Okay. Uh, so did the mining, do mining companies uh, going after lithium? Oh, first of all, uh, we're bouts in Quebec. Um, we're in British Columbia. We don't know Quebec yeah. all that well, yeah. but uh, many of us know enough about Quebec that if you were to give us the name of a city or a region, we would go, aha, of course. So where are they mining lithium in the province of Quebec? So this is located in Abitibi, which is a more northwestern region. That's right. That really abuts the border with Ontario. So the uh, the capital, I think, is Val d'Or, or no, actually it's Wainaranda. So Val d'Or is another um, well-known city in the area. Um, they're not they're not huge cities, but they're mm-hmm. uh, they're a few. They're, they're very known for mining industry. Exactly. Abitibi is a pretty well-known name. Yeah, is Asbestos, absolutely. Quebec, anywhere near that uh, uh, region? No, actually, that's not. That's in a different region. Yeah, that's more. Oh, okay, uh, just checking. Here, yeah. So is lithium, uh, is lithium uh, uh, just a, a compound that you, you pull out of the ground and then uh, uh, break down and, and extract from, from the soil? T- tell us how lithium uh, works. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's well, it's a mineral, and there are different there are different uh, types of it. So there are pegmatites, which are which is a rock type. So you then break it apart from the rock, or it's also found in salt flats, which is um, the type of lithium that's in Chile, for example. And that is a different type of extraction that actually requires a lot more intensive energy and resources in terms of things like water. And for example, in Chile, that's been an issue: is uh, water supply used to mine lithium um, in Quebec. It's actually more pegmatite, so there's the advantage of it being easier to extract and transform after the fact. Um, but yeah, it is a raw material. Okay, so uh, again, once you you take this process of extracting the mineral from mm-hmm. the 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 rocks, the soil, um, then you have the the tailings. Uh, the the you you separate the mineral and and you 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 process that, and that's what you mm-hmm. sell. Everything that's left mm-hmm. over is just uh, well detritus. So what are they doing? Is Absolutely. is it is the is the uh, are the tailings from lithium mining? Uh, first of all, are they toxic? And are they of concerning volumes? I don't think it's actually like the the actual materials that are that are that are left behind. It's more the processes that go into it and the um, the uh, the uh, products that are used to for that process that can be dangerous for environments. So, say there's like lime is used and um, diesel things that can often leak into surrounding groundwaters. Like there were there was a previously existing lithium mine in the area that had about um, 80 or so accidents of spillage into local groundwater. So that those are more the concerns than the actual remaining detritus of, uh, of the actual product itself. Uh, and who's keeping score? Who's up there um, kind of keeping an eye on things and making sure that whatever protocols for safety and environmental concerns are at least adhered to? You know that's a bit that's a bit of a concern as well. There's um, the mining industry uh, is does a lot of self regulation, and because it's um, they're kind of wilder areas, it's not always the best. They don't have the best, I would say, accountability at all times for how they function, um, and that is something that local organizations in EBITB are calling for: is greater monitoring and greater accountability on both the parts of the government and the lithium mines themselves. Interesting. So is this all the Quebec government? Because here we, uh, it it strikes me, we're talking about uh, an industry that is uh, producing a product that is sought after by um, producers the world over, developers and designers the world over. You would think that, uh, I, I would imagine, oh, let me ask you straight up, does most of the lithium mined in Canada stay in Canada? Or, or Caitlin, does it get exported around the world? Well, currently the projects are still underway, right? So they're not, it's not, um, it's not the big extraction project. It's not the big worldwide uh, sale project that they want it to be just yet. Um, A lot of this is still speculative and in process. Um, But yeah, for, for now it is, it is mostly localized in Quebec and Quebec, it is the Quebec government that oversees this process. Ah, now this this again is, is where it's surprising me because uh, when we see the surveillance on the part of the government of Canada with respect to resource development projects elsewhere in the mm-hmm. country, and I'm thinking of Alberta and British Columbia specifically, Saskatchewan as well, you can't mm-hmm. move, you can't breathe without filing form after form after form with Environment Canada, and be you're you're supervised uh, uh, like like a prisoner on parole in the process. Mm-hmm. So you get that kind of vigilance 
mm-hmm, directed at absolutely. some development, some development industries in one part of Canada, and 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 yet it's going on not not the same industry, but the same mm-hmm. uh, degree of intense interest and possible development for the future. And it doesn't appear to be getting much attention from the federal minister of the environment, who happens to be from Vancouver at all. So mm-hmm. how do you how do you square that circle, Caitlin? Um, I don't know if I can speak to the uh, Canadian government's um, involvement in these kind of projects or not. But uh, I mean, it certainly is still a nascent industry. Maybe that has something to do with it. Um, but it is. I'm not sure. It is d- under the dominion of Quebec government regulation. Um, I think that is certainly an issue that local organizations and committees have with all of these projects is the lack of transparency and the lack of uh, accountability for, for their, for their doings, for their locations, for their extraction rates, for all of those details that have a direct impact on their lives. Sure. Well, of course, then this would fall under the Minister of the Environment for the province of Quebec. And if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken, that's Pierre Fitzgibbon and his boss, Francois Legault, I'm sure. He's and, and everyone Minister else. Of, environment, of Economy, sorry, yeah. Okay, uh, but I'm sure everyone at the cabinet table these days is pretty darn excited about the possibility that lithium mining could bring, by way of tax revenue, to the province of Quebec going forward. So they would see this, I'm sure, as a a fantastic money-making opportunity, solidifying a a cash flow for decades in the future. Is that the sense Mm -hmm. that you get from Quebec City? Well. Pretty much so. I mean, the spending in lithium in Quebec from between 2014 and 2018 increased by 789%. So I think wow. it's fair to say that there is, they're, they're betting on it pretty hard. And it does go hand in hand with a lot of the, product, the province's electrification plan, which were announced earlier this year and are pretty huge. I mean, Quebec plans on um, banning sale of all gas-powered cars as of 2035, right. um, which is actually five years ahead of BC, which is the only other province that has kind of that similar, like an officially announced objective. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is there is a lot of betting on that, and they really want to be a sort of um, complete A to B every step of the way part of that cycle. So from, like we're seeing here, the extraction of the mineral and all the way to um, packaging, all the way to, sorry, processing and turning it into batteries and then into cars. In conversation with reporter Caitlin Stahl-Paquette, who uh, wrote a piece at The Walrus recently entitled The Hidden Cost of Lithium Batteries. And uh, Caitlin has told us about the lithium industry, the lithium mining industry in Canada, which is mostly centered in the Abitibi-Tamiskaming region of northwestern Quebec. Who's doing the mining up there, Caitlin? In your article, you talk about an Australian company called Sayona. Are they the principal digger in the area? Well, at the moment, yes, and they are planning on expanding um, and uh, buying up a different project there that is currently defunct. Uh, but yeah, they would currently be the the largest bidder in that respect. And how do they? How does uh, how do the the mining rules in the province of Quebec work? Is it like forestry in BC? You get a license to harvest timber on a certain tract of land, or do they actually have to buy land? And if so, from who? The government. Uh, I'm actually not, I have to say, not 100% sure on all the details of the processes that go through uh, the purchase of it. Sorry about that. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, no problem. So, but the problem uh, for the local people in the region, as I understand it, and this is some of the complications that you talked about in your report in the Walrus, is that mm-hmm. this company came in and decided to go after the uh, the lithium in the ground, but they set it up so that they would extract just a little under a limit, which would require mm-hmm. environmental supervision. And this mm-hmm. th- this this business decision to avoid environmental supervision didn't go down well with the folks who live there, did it? No, it didn't. So yeah, there is a, uh, Quebec has an environmental uh, assessment agency that has its own, um, its own quotas. So they had proposed originally something, it was a uh, not 1,900 tons of extraction, uh, which is just a hundred tons short of what would have forced them to appear in front of the agency. Um, right. And a local committee was formed uh, because to protect the esker that is in the region, because it is a very rich geological area. Um, and they, in their own kind of digging through um, through documents that they could legally get their hands on, found out that it was their actual extraction rate was announced at 2,100 uh, tons a day. So that would have would have in the first place forced them to appear in front of the agency. So they then took matters into their own hands, so to speak, to ensure that that hearing would take place, which is currently set for later this year. Later this year, okay. And do, mm-hmm. do, do they have do they have a date even like the fall kind of thing when maybe even people can show up and in person for a change? Imagine, imagine, Caitlin, in yeah, person think, hearings. <laughs> yeah, what a world. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I, I think it's currently announced for late late uh, late summer, early fall, but an exact date is still TBD. So now, uh, once this uh, this uh, hearing uh, conducted by the Environment Ministry in Quebec regarding lithium mining, will there be objections then from the locals in the area where the mine is taking place? And I guess the second part of the question is: uh, Do Caitlin uh, is is the are the locals more concerned about establishing a set of ground rules? Because it sounds like you said mm-hmm. for now this Australian company is the only one in the game. It sounds like there are a lot of people around the edges of this just waiting for their chance to mm-hmm. jump in. Yeah, well, I think for the committee in place, you know, first of all, the um, the assessment and the, the public hearing is an opportunity for the plans to be laid out clearly and transparently. And that is a big issue that the committee has had throughout this process dealing with the mining company directly is the inaccessibility of their information, the changing nature of their information depending on sources. So this is an opportunity to have it all laid out and have those be standards or goalposts that are actually set and held to. Um, I think, yeah, there is you know, obviously possibility for this to be a precedent to kind of set rules in an environment where it doesn't seem like there are often a lot of rules. Um, and yeah, I think uh, the committee itself is feels a bit like, you know, a bit of a watchdog in an environment where there hasn't been one. And do, do you get the sense too, because you've spent some time up there talking to the local folks, do you get the sense that they understand how big a deal this really is? Well, I've spoken mostly to the people directly involved in the committee who've spent their last few years, like, you know, digging up every detail they can find about it. So certainly they are very aware of the potential that this can play for their future. You know, there is the the proposed project is next to an 8,000 year old geological formation that is the freshwater source for the entire region. And 
you know, has the potential to be very fragile. Eskers are inherently fragile formations, so that host a ton of wildlife. So it's not just about uh, can we, you know, protect the actual water in this esker, it's can we protect the entire thing as an ecosystem. So these people are certainly very aware of the longstanding impact that this can have beyond just, you know, something leaking into the groundwater. Sure, but I guess at at the same time, Caitlin, they're probably being pulled in a couple of different directions at once. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, they're very concerned about the the pristine nature of the environment in which they Mm -hmm. live and their strong desire to see it remain as close to that as possible going forward. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, my gosh, there's this enormous industry coming. Look at all the jobs and the prosperity and all the rest of it that's coming to town. This is exciting stuff. So there's there's a split there, isn't there? Absolutely, but Abitibi again is like a, is a has been a mining area since going back to the 1890s. That's essentially mm-hmm. the region the reason this part of Quebec was colonized in the first place. A lot it has all along the Cadillac Fault that goes all the way into Ontario. So, you know, it's not lithium. It's not it, this is this is not the first time they they see uh, they see a mining project coming in and wanting to kind of take over this part of land. Um, so there is, you know, 20% of the jobs in the region are already mining jobs. There yeah. are seven active mines throughout the region. So this is really a lot of the bread and butter already. Uh, and there's, I think, hesitancy on the part of some people, obviously not everyone, but some people to kind of double down and go further into that extraction-based economy. Right. But at the same time, you got to get it right the first time. There's no exactly. no opportunity yeah. to, get, to get it wrong and, and restart. There's no restarts allowed. Interesting stuff. Fascinating report. Uh, really good work, Caitlin Stolp. Thank yeah, you thanks so much, so much for, 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 the, for the work and for taking time to, uh, to share with us here on The Long Weekend. We appreciate it very much. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Our pleasure entirely. Caitlin Stahl-Paquette joining us from Montreal. Check it out at thewalrus.ca, the hidden cost of rechargeable batteries. When producer Andrew Ferreira went looking for our next guest yesterday, he found her on Mount Frome, uh, the site of an encounter between a young bear and some hikers just a couple of days ago. Our next guest is back with us. She's Lucy Cadman, the education coordinator with the North Shore Black Bear Society. Lucy, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for another opportunity. Well, it's great to have you back with us. Now, are you at home right now or are you already out on the trails? I'm, I'm at home currently, but preparing to uh, be out at the trailheads today for, for much of the day and, uh, and tomorrow as well. Now, this uh, encounter that uh, happened in North Vancouver, where you were yesterday on Mount Frome on Friday, there was a group of, of hikers uh, just on a trail, a local group, uh, and they encountered, I assume, a young bear uh, who um, was fairly aggressive and took a swipe at one of the hikers and scuffed up his leg a little bit. No major injuries or harm, but nonetheless, a pretty scary moment for some people just out for a stroll in the afternoon. Uh, yes, so... Uh Fortunately, the injury was very minor. Now, it's yeah. incredibly rare for black bears to make physical contact with people. Uh, certainly, we do see more curiosity um, from our younger male bears in particular. Uh, it seems that this bear was uh, just asking for space and uh, not acceptable behavior to make physical contact. Absolutely not. Uh, mm-hmm. But we must stress that wildlife in this area in particular are under a huge amount of pressure from recreation, certainly uh, mountain biking, uh, it's, it's a real hot spot for mountain biking activity, mm-hmm. hikers, dogs. Um, and so our wildlife is being pressured constantly 
uh, by that recreation, uh, yielding typically for, for most uh, of the encounters. Uh, but it seems that this young bear just felt pressured and uh, was asking for space in this situation, which is why we advise carrying bear spray for those uh-huh. very, very rare situations where a bear approaches you and a firm tone is not enough to deter that bear. They continue to approach. In those situations, we would deploy our bear spray. It's a non-lethal teaching tool uh, that sets boundaries with these young bears that can be taught uh, about our personal space and need for personal space. Interesting that you would point to bear spray because the fellow who was scuffed up by that young bear said, normally when I go out hiking with my friends, you know, on on serious uh, hikes, I definitely always carry bear spray. But here I was, essentially, he thought, in my own backyard and didn't feel the need. He says, I won't make that mistake again. And you say anybody going out on any of the trails, particularly on the North Shore Mountains, should automatically include bear spray as part of their basic gear going out that day right? Absolutely. So knowledge of bear behavior and how to respond in an encounter, how to avoid encounters. So using your voice as you move through areas where bears live, keeping your dog on a close leash, keeping any food sources within reach Mm -hmm. uh, and carrying bear spray. Uh, Now in the hundreds of encounters that I've had with black bears, I've never needed to deploy my spray. It's incredibly rare that we would need to, uh, but it is uh, a great tool to have in those rare situations. It would have prevented human injury and it would have taught this bear uh, a lesson. And what we do uh, let people know is that we shouldn't become complacent, even if we're going to busy areas with lots of people around. Bears are still active in those areas. The bears that live closer to people in the periphery of our environment, the ones that we see uh, on our local trails are the vulnerable population of bears. So younger bears, typically females and cubs. And they're actually forced to be active during the daytime to avoid dominant male bears. Uh, So it's very, very normal to see bears during the daytime on our very busy trails here on the North Shore. So please don't get complacent. Yeah, you point out too that, and, and it's important because uh, there it's uh, it's time for new babies, and uh, so the, a lot of these bears. And you pointed out that the the likely uh, situation on Friday afternoon was a young male bear. Now these 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 bears have been living with mom since they were born in the den for just a little over a year, and then as mom moves on to have another set of cubs, uh, she kicks out the the yearling, and this was a yearling bear. So it's I mean it's a physically it's a very large creature but nonetheless it's a quite a young animal and just essentially just uh, sort of trying to figure it all out and this sort of stumbled into some people and uh, both parties equally shocked as is usually the case isn't it well i can't confirm that in fact this is a yearling bear in fact i do believe uh, that the bear is uh, at least two and a half or three and a half years old oh, okay uh, just Different based one. on okay. reports from just based on reports from uh, last year of uh, same kind of encounter, but no physical contact from what we described as a pushy bear. Um, so it is usually those young juveniles, though, that are typically more curious that might approach people. And it's sure. very important that we, that we set those boundaries. Uh, but absolutely, right now is dispersal season. So those uh, mother bears will be sending off their yearlings. Those yearling bears are then uh, looking to find their own home range. Uh, it's vital that we don't tempt bears into the community with food sources and teach these bears that they can find food from people, always, absolutely. Uh, but I would like to stress as well that we'll start to see very soon our females with their new cubs. Yes. And a female black bear is especially timid. 
The way that she protects her family is by retreating from danger, which is humans, dogs, other bears. Um, so typically treeing the cubs and hiding at the base of the tree. Uh, so those vulnerable bears, again, remember, choose to live closer to people to keep their young safe from those dominant male bears. But those females with cubs are especially timid and shy. Well, that's interesting because one would assume exactly the opposite, Lucy. Mm -hmm. You know, the mama bear syndrome, you know, don't don't mess with mama bear. I mean, it's a thing in America, right? So one assumes here, one assumes that if uh, 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 my rule has always been, if you see a bear cub, you get you get two seconds to go. Ah, and then you get you better get the heck out of there because if you see a baby bear, mama's not too far behind, and she's going to want to protect that cub. Now you're you're saying that mama here in 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 uh, North Vancouver or in British Columbia is likely going to want to take the babies and get the heck out of there. But the instinct and we the mama bear syndrome kicks in in our minds, and we go, uh oh, she's going to want us out of this area, and she's going to come after us with everything she's got. It's one of the biggest misconceptions about black bear behavior, certainly, and that's why we're trying to get the message out there um, because we will see females with cubs on our local trails traveling through oh, the sure. community, looking for safety there. Um, but typically, yes, um, she might be very strict with the cubs if the cub is perhaps uh, allowed space for a human to unintentionally get in between a female black bear and the cub. Uh, the mother bear will be very strict with the cub. Um, so if we see these bear cubs, Please don't get tempted to get close. Give them lots of personal space. Oh, you yeah. won't appreciate your approaching, absolutely. Uh, but they're typically retreating. Uh, very calm by nature and uh, not looking to get into any kind of situation with humans, which is a huge, huge risk to them. I'm going to do a thing in our next hour. We're going to talk to some people about birding because with the pandemic, Lucy, uh, people have found new ways to get outdoors, which fortunately here in British Columbia, we've been allowed to do for the last 15 months, get outdoors and, and enjoy. And so thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of us have discovered birding. It's inexpensive and it's easy to do. Is there a group of people that you're familiar with who do the same with bears, who go follow the bears and take pictures? Uh, certainly, um, we've got some contacts with some ethical wildlife photographers. So people that are understanding the areas uh, where bears move around, they're making sure that they're not uh, interfering and, and pushing bears uh, into other areas, which could be certainly a danger. So what we see all too often is um, unethical wildlife photographers or, you know, just amateur photographers with, our, with cell phones approaching bears and getting yeah. close and that puts lots of stress and pressure now bears show very subtle signs of stress um, yawning pretending to eat they might drool um, and that is all the bear saying i'm stressed you're too close what we can do as well if we approach is push the bear into the path of perhaps a dominant bear that could be a risk to them so our impact is huge uh, so we certainly don't encourage people going out looking for bears to take photographs right um yeah I wanted to ask you about it simply because, you know, it seemed to me a rather dangerous hobby, if you don't mind my saying. And you would agree, Lucy, perhaps you know, birds are a little more uh, docile and a lot less threatening and intimidating to deal with. So maybe maybe stick with our feathered friends. It's great to have you back on the show, Lucy. Uh, lots of bears in the news. It always happens at this time of the year, every any year. But it seems this year is, there seems to be a little bit more. So we do appreciate. I know you're heading back out to the trails right now, but we appreciate your taking a few moments 
moments with us just to remind us of the basics should an encounter with a bear occur to any of us over the next few days. We appreciate it very much. Absolutely. Thank you so very much. Have a great weekend. You too. There's Lucy Cadman, the Education Coordinator with the North Shore Black Bear Society. It's a pleasure to welcome back to the program three-time Automotive Journalist of the Year, Jeremy Cato, host of CatoCarGuy.com, here to talk about e-cars and, well, pretty much everything on the road. Jeremy, good morning and welcome back. Hi, Sterling. Good to be here. Electric cars are the future. I'm reading from Car and Driver here. Electric cars are the future, and each year we've seen automakers add more EVs to their lineup. Everyone is working on electric vehicles, Jeremy, from well-established existing manufacturers to new names like Byton, Lordstown, and Rivian, which you've talked to us about before. Uh, So uh, more and more companies committing, in fact, to ending uh, their gas engine product lines. Uh, Now, we're talking years in the future, but nonetheless, the commitment level is extraordinary. And yet you predicted exactly this on this show at least a year ago. So what's happened in the past year to see so many more of them get on board? Uh, Well, in the the short answer, the shortest answer uh, is is, uh, President Biden got elected. Um, and he, he intends to push uh, the United States into the forefront of uh, electric vehicle development and support. So that means uh, in charging infrastructure. Uh, and, you know, th- that was part of his election plan was a green plan for the uh, for the United States, which means we're talking, uh, you know, the federal government in the U.S. Uh, supporting electric vehicles, not unlike the way the Chinese government has already been supporting electric vehicles dramatically in China. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, the biggest EV makers in the world right now are Chinese car companies, not American or European. And that trend is, is going to continue. The, the, the other point I'd make is that there's an election in Germany in the fall. Uh, and the Green Party is looks like it's going to be the the biggest winner of uh, of a multi party Bundestag parliament in in uh, in Germany. And the Green Germany, Party yeah. is about to phase out gasoline and diesel vehicles entirely from German roads uh, by 2030. So we're seeing the big macro factors. And then the last piece is affordability. I mean, you probably saw the the Ford. Uh, F-150 Lightning uh, launch on Wednesday, which, uh, by the way, President Biden took it for a test drive Tuesday Exactly. Night. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that truck is, without any incentives, is scheduled in the United States to sell for under $40,000. Is that right? Yeah. So, you know, and, and in the United States, there's a, right now there's a $7,500 uh, 7, federal incentive Sure. So you you can be looking at buying an F-series pickup, a fully electric F-series pickup for the low 30s. So affordability, the big uh, political movement, uh, and, I, and I, I think the cultural movement. I mean, there, there's something happening there on the ground um, with buyers and consumers in general um, of not just cars, but of all things uh, that are just seeing that maybe there's, a better way to do things, or at least a different way that's equally interesting. So, uh, and then the automakers themselves are throwing billions, of, I mean, literally hundreds of billions of dollars, both startup companies like Lordstown and Rivian mm-hmm. and established ones such as Ford and General Motors and BMW and Mercedes and Hyundai. Um, you know, they're throwing literally hundreds of billions of dollars at this. I mean, Hyundai just announced uh, recently that it's going to sp- invest almost $8 billion in a new EV manufacturing facility in the United States. So 
all these pieces are coming together. Uh, and it, it's a really interesting time because there will be some new startups. You know, I, I still consider Tesla a startup, you know, sure, it's only yeah. 20 years old. That's right. Um, and some others, like you mentioned, Rivia and Lordstown. And there's, there'll be a few that we haven't heard of. And then there'll be the, the, uh, the legacy automakers who are also not going to, they're not going to quit this game. And they'll be launching not just new models, but new brands. So Hyundai will have, is launching its Ionic electric vehicle brand. Mercedes-Benz has launched the EQ electric vehicle. But BMW has its i-series. So mm-hmm. there's just, you know, there's just a huge push. And it's kind of an exciting time. It certainly is. And you were one of the first to point out, again, this goes back a year or more, Jeremy, about the cultural aspect of all of this, because it's beyond just, you know, the hard business decisions of of a a major manufacturer to retool a production line such as GM has decided to do in Oshawa, etc. There's the, the reason behind these enormous investments and business decisions is because of a significant cultural shift. And it's that sort of greening uh, mentality. Now, back to the subsidies. Oh, and by the way, I did see Biden test drive that electric Ford F-150. Yeah. He thought he thought it was pretty quick, too. He, he didn't mind that that part at all. Well, you, you remember before the election in the United States last fall, he was out test driving. I think it was an electric uh, Corvette. So, That's right. Uh, yeah. he, you know, he's throwing the weight of the president. He's not the coal president, which was Trump. So he was living in 19, you know, 20. And uh, this president, it's pretty shocking, Sterling, when you think about it. The 78-year-old president uh, is more, far more forward-looking than even our own prime minister, who can't really get out of his own way. And uh, it, 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 who is, what is it, 47, 47? 47, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you've got a, you've got a uh, you know, by any measure, an elderly gentleman who is leading this progressive push to reinventing um the United States economic prospects, and that has huge implications for Canada, of course. Sure it does. Now, you talked about incentives uh, and the fact that you can buy one of these new Ford electric F-150s for under forty k when you include a $7,500 kickback from the feds. In mm-hmm. Canada, the we also have uh, federal and provincial incentives that is uh, pretty much given a, a leg up to the e-car industry in this country, but some of the provinces and indeed the feds, Jeremy, are already talking about scaling back their incentives and they say because well we don't they're not needed as much anymore because manufacturing prices are coming down it's not as prohibitively expensive to buy an electric vehicle anymore so the the removal or the scaling back of incentives in canada you see that as a negative or a positive because a lot of canadians said i only bought my e-car because the government helped me buy it well, I think uh, in the short term, it, it's a problem. And what, what every manufacturer will tell you through its sales numbers is that the provinces that scale back EV incentives. So, for example, Ontario did. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen a plunge in their in their EV sales. Provinces that do not provide subsidies of any kind or, or incentives. Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. I mean, essentially, they don't. No one buys an electric vehicle in those provinces. There's also a, a cultural uh, dimension to that. In provinces that are, um, what I would call, looking for the next new thing. I don't want to be uh, casting value judgments on this, but Quebec has um, 
uh, has committed, for example, to a really an electrified future, largely right. because Quebec has a lot of hydroelectric, and so electricity is not a problem. British Columbia, the same. And that's really Quebec and British Columbia are, are the two provinces where almost everybody is buying an electric car in Canada. Um, this, that, those are the provinces where those people are, are buying those vehicles. Uh, and not, not surprisingly, those are the two provinces with massive hydroelectric capability. So an electric sure. car is a clean car. Yeah. Jeremy, um, because so the, the interim step between the gas vehicle and the e-vehicle is the hybrid and a lot of people are sort of going that way by way of maybe experimenting, getting a taste of what it might be like, that sort of thing. How are hybrid sales in Canada these days? Uh, very strong. Uh, the market leader in that, of course, is Toyota. Toyota, I just saw a release from Toyota the other day that touted the uh, Toyota has sold more than 2 million electrified vehicle so they're talking priuses and, and that sort of thing mm-hmm. um but you know the hybrid has uh, you know i mean if you really wanted to look at this in a historical context toyota launched the prius in um you know 20 20 years ago and it changed the conversation it took a long time but the acceptance of this idea that an electric vehicle could be a mainstream vehicle and could be durable and reliable really was kicked that that whole movement has been kicked off by Toyota with the Prius and now, the taxi yeah, industry and the ta- well yeah i mean you ask a taxi driver uh, how how often they have to do brake jobs never yeah. or almost never mm-hmm. um you know the fuel economy is terrific especially in the short hops uh in a, in an urban environment so uh, and that so today what you're seeing is a really good very strong sales of hybrid vehicles but Part of that is because Toyota is such a massive uh, automaker, not just in Canada, but I think Toyota is the third largest uh, seller of vehicles in, in Canada. And so, you know, when about a third of your, your, your volume, your sales volume, is a hybrid of some sort, well, that, mm-hmm. that gives hybrids a big push. And then the, the Korean automaker, uh, Hyundai, which is also runs the, owns the Kia brand, yeah, right. push, it, I mean, Hyundai has modeled itself after being the Korean version of Toyota. And naturally, there's been a big push there into hybrids. And so, uh, you know, Hyundai Kia sells more than, in a, in a normal year, more than 200,000 vehicles in Canada. So again, you're, you're talking about big volume manufacturers investing in a technology that actually for, for the urban driver, a hybrid is a, just a terrific alternative. Um, you know, I mean, you're, you're, you're getting amazing. You know, I know people that spend $50 a month driving their hybrids right. in, in and around Vancouver on gas. That's it. 50 bucks to yeah. drive. Instead I mean, of 50 how do you bucks argue a week. with that? When was yeah. the last time you filled up your F-Series gasoline pickup? Yeah, that's a stunner, isn't it? St- yeah, talk that's about a your, $150 fill-up. That's a sticker shock, you bet. Yeah. So if you fill up your your little Prius or, or your, you know, your uh, Kia Nero and spend $50 for a month of just urban commuting, it <laughs> that adds up, especially when we spend so much money on housing and other costs here in British Columbia. <laughs> no question about it. Jeremy Cato is back with us. Mr. Cato is a, an automotive journalist, longtime Globe and Mail automotive journalist, uh, the host of CatoCarGuy.com. We're talking about the future of cars, and Jeremy's a big e-car proponent, has been for a long time. And now uh, the B.C. government's getting uh, involved recently in the news about e-trucks. 
Jeremy, because uh, here in BC, we've decided that uh, if we want to get more green uh, uh, vehicles on the road, that includes heavy duty trucks, then we're going to have to give them an opportunity to show their stuff. And one of the things the Ministry of Transportation in BC has decided to do is allow e-trucks to carry a little bit more weight than uh, a typical gas or natural gas fired vehicle. They, the, the, the Truckers Association in BC, by the way, say there are 60,000 heavy duty trucks currently in the province, Jeremy. Only a handful are electric. 900 run on natural gas. The rest are powered by diesel fuel. Uh, the electric range of these trucks is only 100 clicks. So they use them mostly around uh, warehouses and situations like that. The And yet we see Tesla's got an e-truck model. Many of the other manufacturers are stepping up to the plate with e-trucks. As, as we turn our attention from cars to trucks for just a minute, what do you see in terms of the future of trucks and electrified heavy-duty trucks on the roads down in the future? Well, the, the challenge you face with, uh, if, if you're talking heavy-duty, so you're talking long-range, uh, yeah. inter-provincial trucking, that sort of thing, yep. um, the, the biggest challenge is, 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 the, is the infrastructure. Where are you going to charge these things up? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it's not so much that you can't. Uh, a large heavy-duty truck, uh, so an 18-wheeler, let's say, it can actually make sense because you've just got so much real estate for for a large battery pack, um, as opposed to say a small car like a like the old Tesla Roadster, which had you know several thousand little tiny battery cells. Any, anyway, where do you charge them up if you're a long range trucker, and how sure. do you charge them up quickly? And, and that's really the that's really the challenge. And we don't have that infrastructure in Canada yet. So the Trucking Association is abs- Association is absolutely right in that the long distance haulers. It, it will not make any sense. But the short-distance delivery trucks, Aha. and now so many people um, you know, shop on Amazon and other delivery places, um, that makes a lot of sense because you're, you're never going to drive more than you – know, those vehicles don't drive more than 250, 300 kilometers in a day of delivering groceries and packages and, and so on and so forth. Right. And, and so the, the range issue is not a problem. You can have one hub, for example, the Amazon hub, let's say, where all their vehicles can get charged at night or they get their, their uh, recharged in a rolling fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, so for, uh, you know, for urban centers, which are very crowded and pollution is an issue, um, air pollution and, and other kinds of pollution, pollution from tires spinning up, uh, you know, uh, material into the atmosphere. Uh, that, that makes a ton of sense. And so the long range truck is a bigger issue because there's no infrastructure. Now, President Biden, to go back to what he's, he announces, I mean, the, the U.S., his plan is to put almost $200 billion into infrastructure developments to support electric vehicles, which would help. Sure. The, the the trucking business, but I, I I see the market for uh the, the for delivery vehicles to be promising and huge. Yeah, Amazon has already committed to uh, uh, quite a significant delivery uh, feet, uh, fleet of medium-sized uh, vehicles for precisely that purpose, Jeremy. Tootling around town, dropping off packages, and going back to the warehouse for another load. Uh, precisely the right kind of, of, of mix in terms of t- tasking for the, for the vehicle. Uh, and again, uh, the, the, the whole thing comes down to charging. We did a, a piece an hour ago with a woman in Montreal who was a reporter who was talking about the lithium 
mining industry in Canada, which right. is in mostly in the Abitibi region of northern Quebec, and talking about how it's becoming a big deal and, and uh, uh, how more companies are coming to Canada. We have an Australian company that's developed a lithium mine already, and certainly a lot of players already hovering at, and expecting to get to get going on that. Uh, so uh, there, and she just talked about uh, uh, any, as is the case with any kind of resource extraction, Jeremy. It's not a clean process, and so the <laughs> no. the idea of, of of greening the automotive industry and and going to the electric option, the rechargeable battery, is is not without its challenges. And she did a very interesting report about how the people around the area where the mines are, are uh, going on. And of course it is a mining area anyway, they're just not going to let people come in and just run roughshod all over them. There has to be a plan. And, and with the kind of demand going forward, you, 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 you must, you must think that uh, the, the mining industry in, in Canada can only see this as just, uh, just pure gravy going forward. I, I think what you're, you know, to add to that that thought, lithium is is just one piece of the puzzle. I mean, True. you think about what it, it takes to put electric vehicles, or just in, it, you increase the uh, the footprint of electrified anything. Um, you're talking uh, certainly with, from the battery side of things: cobalt, nickel, mm-hmm. uh, uh, copper. Uh, you know, for so for example, uh, you know, an electric vehicle I think uses five times as much copper as a normal internal combustion engine vehicle. Hmm. Um, so if you look around, you say, well, where we, you know, Canada does have the, some of these resources in, 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 uh, in, in, in good volumes. Yes. Um, but the biggest, um, nickel producer in the world is in the Congo. Uh, and hmm. one of the biggest nickel mining companies uh, active there is Ivanhoe Mines, which uh, British Columbians might remember. Uh, the the CEO of Ivanhoe is a guy named uh, Robert Friedman, Bob Friedland, yes. who was involved with Galactic Resources, you know, an old VSE company. Uh, uh, but you know, so my point here is that the you know the the mining industry has underinvested. Uh, in mining because it's a dirty industry and it doesn't have a good reputation for uh, several decades. And so the, the, the biggest question we're, we're looking at going forward is where are we going to get, uh, you know, not just lithium, but nickel, cobalt, copper, sure. um, these are all in demand. So, th- I mean, so, so for, uh, what, what does that mean for the British Columbians? Well, there's a, there's a, there's a, a copper company called the little copper mining company just out of Princeton. Um, and that, that company, um, the stock for that company is more than doubled in the last eight months because there's such a global increased demand for for copper. That's just a little company where it was trading at uh, you know a buck and a half a share not very long ago, and now it's uh, now last I checked it. yeah. it's over three. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so one of the plays, if you're an investor uh, in the EV business, is to look at what are the what's the infrastructure around electric vehicles that that you're going to need. What raw materials? Well, not unlike how did Levi's, the, the gene maker, become a global powerhouse in, in clothing and whatnot? Well, Levi set up business in, in California, in San Francisco, in the 1850s gold rush to support the miners who needed clothes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, there's a history of looking at these things and say, okay, what does it take to make electric vehicles? Um, you know, what, what goes into a battery pack? 
Um, yeah, and, and so it's, a, it's a good point to make from the point of view of the of the investor. And there are a lot of people with a few bucks uh, looking around at new places to invest these days. By the way, an email from from uh, Alan uh, says, I just took delivery of a 2021 Toyota Highlander. It took two months for delivery, but so far, so good. There's a little plug for your hybrids this morning. Jeremy, I'm out of time. <laughs> I am always grateful for yours. Thanks for doing this with us. Okay, we'll do it again, Sterling. Thank you. You bet we will. Cato Car Guy, if you want more on Jeremy and his thoughts on electric vehicles, Cato, C-A-T-O, carguy.com. This is the time of year that Vancouverites, at least some of us, actually dread because some of us call this a time of the year a tax season. And we're talking about our local resident crows <laughs> so and and you see it on tv all oh, those vicious birds and those poor victims walking all they're trying to do is go get a bag of groceries and they were dive bombed by a crow well it, it's a tax season maybe on tv but ornithologists and birders call this nesting season it happens every year sometimes a little later or earlier in the year before but always in may and june sometimes in early july and the crow's behavior of course is entirely instinctive they're protecting their young from a perceived threat meaning you here to talk more about it is George Clulo. Mr. Clulo is a bird expert and the former president of the BC Field Ornithologist. George, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning, Sterling. It's a pleasure to have you with us, George. This whole business of attack season, it makes for great TV. You got to give it you got to give it that, don't you? You, you do, you do. It does make for some uh, some some good footage, and uh, sometimes, of course, amusing footage when people take off being pursued by a black bird. Uh, but uh, but you were right in your intro. Um, this is more like a nesting season, and I like to think of it rather than attack season as defence season, where the crows are defending their territory, but particularly their nests, which probably have young by this time of year. Right. And of course, though, we walking to the grocery store down a side street in the West End, all of a sudden get dive bombed by a fairly largish black bird. Don't see that as a defensive move somehow. We, we interpret that otherwise, but that's exactly what's going on. And they don't intend to harm, do they, George? No, they're, they're, really, uh, they're really saying uh, clear out of our territory. Um, you sometimes see the crows uh, flying up and chasing off uh, hawks and eagles. And it's much the same thing. We're seen as a potential threat uh, to, the, to their young. And they live in these um, extended family groups. So these neighborhood crows that you have are, are um, there in an extended family. And there's two of the extended family, the sort of the seniors of the group that are they're actually breeding. So there may be a little bit of a mob there defending um, the, the, the home nest. And so there can be quite a few crows that may be just defending a single nest. Well, sure. And it can be quite disconcerting, especially if you're not paying attention and all of a sudden, zoom, 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 you're getting bombed by, by a bunch of birds and you didn't do anything at all. So uh, what do you, what's the best human reaction to these situations aside from, you know, flailing your arms around your head and saying, get out of here? Well, actually, that is probably the very worst thing to do is the flailing arms, um, because crows have incredibly good memory and can remember mm -hmm. faces for in fact years and so if you flail your arms you're being seen as perhaps attacking them yes. and they're going to take exception to that so it's, it's a good idea to think from the crow perspective rather than just the human perspective both are important um, mm. and so probably don't flail your arms wear a hat 
wear an umbrella, don't make any aggressive moves towards the crows because they will pin you then as somebody who is a real threat because you're flailing your arms at them or you're shouting at them or... And, and demonstrating uh, and what remember. they would perceive to be aggressive behavior, right? That, that's right, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Uh, George, there's another thing I wanted to ask you about crows this morning. Uh, because you indicate, uh, and quite accurately, they are very, very family-oriented. They, they work in large, large family groups. However, they don't all coexist equally and peacefully. I have seen, uh, I live near a cemetery, and I saw over the cemetery about a month ago an actual gang fight involving two, uh, presumably, families of crows. And it was some kind of intense, i got to tell you. Yeah, I've, I've seen that too. There, there, there certainly are um, aggressive uh, encounters between crows. It's either somebody has uh, uh, breached some kind of social um, standard in, in, crow, uh, in crow world, uh, or there's somebody that they're, they're, they've uh, pegged as an intruder. And so you do sometimes see that, but within the within the uh, the small neighbourhood groups, and and in the big roosts at Burnaby uh, every every evening, especially during the winter months. Oh yeah. Um, these birds are very very social, and they are uh, with as with most social animals, they're, they're very very intelligent. Being social seems to boost intelligence because you have to be aware of other things in your environment not just yourself and there are others that you're interacting with that are part of uh, the way you make a living mm -hmm. so George, in uh, many ways they're, they're they're like us they're just doing what we would do uh in in similar circumstances well, that, and that leads me to my final question in terms of coexisting with crows uh, beyond being a, a, a target for a dive bomb. Uh, what's the best way for humans to interact with them? I mean, they're all around and they're all, and all the time. They're incredibly intelligent uh, and they do have excellent memories. So what's, what's the best way to enjoy them? Well, I think just look at them as, a, as an intelligent animal. Uh, I mean, a, an interesting thing you can do is walk down the street, and if you see a crow walking on the sidewalk or on the grass verge or lawn or whatever, um, just don't look at the crow and walk straight ahead, and the crow will allow you to come very, very close indeed. But if mm -hmm. you just glance to the side, it'll take off. So they're very aware of you. So I'd appreciate, I would recommend that people look at them as a really intelligent, smart animal that is actually doing many of the things that we would do in, in our lives. They're social. They defend their home territory. Um, uh, they're, they're wonderful birds. And also, there's lots of stuff on the Internet where you can see them doing some amazing uh, memory feats. Um, so, uh, yeah, enjoy them as part of our environment rather than looking at them as, uh, as something that swoops at your head. <laughs> Once you get past that part, they are an awful lot of fun. George Clulo, thanks very much for giving us a little bit of your Sunday morning. It's an important conversation to have had. Thanks, Sterling. Our pleasure entirely. Here's a, a headline from the Globe and Mail just a few days ago. The pandemic might turn us all into birders. With the animal kingdom spared from the lockdown that have kept billions of humans at home, birds can bring color, drama, and comfort to our lives. If we know where to look. Here to help us, well, find out where to look is Melissa Hafting. She is the uh, founder of the BC Young Birders Program, and she runs the BC Rare Bird Alert blog. Melissa, good morning and welcome. Good morning. 
We are delighted to have you with us. We had uh, George Clulo uh, from the BC uh, Field Ornithologists, and they're, of course, connected to the Young Birders program on a few minutes ago, talking about living with crows. So we've we've taken care of that detail, Melissa. But I wanted to just comment first and foremost about how uh, the 14 months or so of this pandemic, how much uh, the birder interest and birder activity in British Columbia has grown in just this 14-month period. Yes, it really has. I've seen so many more birders and uh, young birders getting out and birders of all different ages just reporting rare birds to me and and seeing them in the field. And it's really nice to see. I think a lot of people have taken up this hobby because they're, you know, stuck in their local areas. And it's something that brings a lot of peace and mental wellness to them. It's also inexpensive, Melissa. All you need is Mm -hmm. some decent outdoor gear and a decent pair of binoculars, and I guess a camera if you're going to photograph uh, rare birds and report them to people like you who can report them online. But typically, binoculars are are, are, uh, the most important piece of equipment, correct? Yes, that's correct. All you need is a pair of binoculars, and even if you can't afford binoculars, a lot of our local libraries here uh, do a program where you can rent out a pair of binoculars for free and a bird field uh-huh. guide. And that is really, um, yeah, it's really wonderful. So that this is an accessible hobby to everyone. When did you start birding? I started birding when I was five years old and my dad wow. would take me to Rifle Bird Sanctuary and, you know, I'd feed the birds there and he got me a little field guide and I would look and see which bird I, we tick off which bird I would see on every visit. And that's how I got into it. And I just kept going and going, and it became an obsession and passion for me. Where's the Rifle Bird Sanctuary? Uh, That's in Delta, in Ladner. Okay. Is that one of the... Uh, okay. Is that, I, I'm just, I'm looking for, again, for people who are, here we are on a long weekend. Some people, mm-hmm. you know, we're still trying to behave and do the circuit breaker stuff and, you know, keep within our limitations. And when you go to the Rare uh, Birders uh, blog, you've got all the social protocols and information on there, including things like stay two meters apart while you're outdoors birding, for crying out loud. But yeah. uh, back to the, the point of, 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 of the question, which is when you're, when you're out there and, and I'm looking for places to go to start i mean you can go you you can go into the woods and if you know what you're looking for to track a specific species but as as it was the case with you when you were a little person uh, you just found a great place to go where you could observe all sorts of species and just begin the process of learning about it besides the rifle bird sanctuary what other spots around metro vancouver melissa would you say are just like that great spots to start I think some great places to start are places like Stanley Park, you know, that gives you different, there's a different variety of habitats in there. You have the ocean, you have uh, birds inside, in, inland there, in like lakes and freshwater. So you get birds in two different habitats and there's lots of diversity of species. Uh, basically, you can start even in your own backyard, though. Right in your own backyard, you can see if you feed birds, you can see what comes to the feeder. You don't even have to go very far. But wherever you go in Metro Vancouver, we have uh, quite a level of high diversity of birds because of the mountains and everything and the ocean. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think there's, there's just so many places to go. Stanley Park, Rifle Bird Sanctuary, uh, Boundary Bay is a great place to go watch right. shorebirds, things like that. 
Okay. Uh, as far as uh, the, uh, the the tools, you're, you're, you said when you were a little kid, your dad bought you a basic sort of a guide mm -hmm. book to get you started. Again, uh, there's so much information online and we all carry phones for crying out loud. We don't need books necessarily, <laughs> but I'm surprised when I go out to see, and birders typically carry a backpack of some kind, and I'm, it's not at all surprising to see a book or two in those backpacks. Yeah, so most birders carry a field guide with them, and uh, a lot of people now just carry a field guide on their phone, on their app. Yeah. have an app that is a field guide, so you can do that as well, so to lighten your load. But um, it's just nice to, if you see a bird in the field that you're not exactly sure what it is, you can quickly look through your, your book and, and see a reference like that. Um, that's why we like to carry it with us. And also you can just study some more fine points of what the bird you're looking at is. Is there a spot, for example, does the BC Field Ornithologists or any other organization have a place online, Melissa, where people can go and again, just sort of learn the ABCs of birding, getting into the activity and, and how to approach it and, and, and just sort of a, a primer kind of thing? Yeah, on the BCFO website, bcfo.ca, they have uh, a list of like ethical guides and places to go bird watching, um, groups, and they also lead trips, field nature trips. Uh, right now they aren't running because of COVID, but there's uh, just lots of information for a birder to get started and welcomed into the community that way. Mm -hmm. And also um, on my Rare Bird Alert blog, people can email me questions for identification. I'm always happy to ha answer those and also about tips of where to go. Also, when you look at the rare birds, you can see it gets you to go to places that you may never have gone to before. Like some people told me there, were, there was a Veery a couple of years ago at Derby Reach uh, Park in Langley. And they said that they discovered a new park because of that sure. bird. Well, and that's it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, it allows you to, to, uh, to, especially once you get into a little bit and you start looking for specific species, then you, you go to where they are. And if they're in a place you've never been to before, double bonus. You, you learn about a bird and a new part of British Columbia. Exactly. Yes. And you also get to meet lots of friends when you're out birding. You get to get that social aspect, which a lot of people are in isolation right now. And so when they get to you know, make new friends this way or just have some social interaction. It's really beneficial to your mental health. Yeah, and, and you're quite uh, right, yeah. too. We, we have here, because of our climate, uh, I remember moving to British Columbia, and we, we drove across Canada from Quebec City in February, Melissa, and all <laughs> of a sudden, boom, we're on the floor of the Fraser Valley near Chilliwack, and it is green, and there are robins <laughs> and all sorts Good. of birds, and I couldn't believe it. Because, of course, the rest of Canada is under 12 feet of snow. And here <laughs> right. in British Columbia, there's, there's birds for crying out loud in February. So our local mm -hmm. resident population of birds is quite unlike anywhere else in Canada, isn't it? Yes, that's very true. And, yeah, we're very lucky to have birds, a high diversity of birds, even in winter here. So it's a great place to go bird watching. Yeah, you know, you're talking about Stanley Park, and you got all those shorebirds on the saltwater side. You've got uh, mm -hmm. uh, the, the the lake, the pond in the middle, so you've got those freshwater birds. And then mm -hmm. there are the herons up in the trees. There's that the rookery up there going on, and that's quite astonishing as well, isn't it? Yes, that's amazing to see, and it's nice to have because our our herons are blue listed here, and they're declining. So it's really nice to see a nice. Uh, rookery there where the birds are breeding and doing well and it's great to see people love to look at that 
You bet. Uh, final question to you, Melissa, and we're grateful for your time on the long weekend. Hummingbirds, we have them all around our place here in New Westminster. I just love them. How do we uh, learn to, and what can we do to interact even more favorably with hummingbirds? Yeah, I love hummingbirds too. Me too. Um, <laughs> the best way to do it is to put out a feeder in your yard because birds, hummingbirds uh, are attracted to feeders. You put out a quarter cup of sugar, you boil that with one cup of water, and you clean your feeder every three days. It's very important to clean it so the birds don't get fungus on their bills. Right. And you can watch Anna's hummingbirds come in. We get them year-round, and then during the summer we'll get Rufus hummingbirds. And sometimes you never know, a rarity could show up at your hummingbird feeder. We just had a Costas hummingbird in Maple Ridge. I saw that um, yeah, on your website, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that was amazing to see, and that those guys should be in Arizona and California. So you just never know what can show up, and hummingbirds like to get, you can get close to them by watching them at the feeder, so it's a great thing to do. They sure are. They're so entertaining. Melissa Hafting, thank you so much for this encouraging uh, activity and information about birding. It's a sport that a lot of us are starting to enjoy even more. It's so inexpensive, and it's so easy to do. Thank you for this. Thank you so much. There's Melissa Hafting. She runs the BC Rare Bird Alert blog. You can find it online. Time to do the Arts Corner here on CKNW Weekend Mornings as we welcome Ashley Corcoran, the Artistic Director from the Arts Club Theatre, to the program. Ashley, good morning, and thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you, and I know you want to talk to us about this online presentation, this package you've got coming up in June, Ashley, and I'll let you do that in a second, but I have a question for you first. About a month or so ago, a group of arts community representatives met with the Minister of Arts, Culture, and Sport, Melanie Marks, and Dr. Bonnie Henry. The point of the meeting at that time was just to let those two individuals know how much the pandemic has wreaked havoc on their communities and wondering, inquiring, begging, call it what you will, to get people back into the com in community theaters and venues all over the province. So now we know, Mr. Horgan told us on Friday, that the, uh, the circuit breaker is likely to expire at midnight tomorrow night, which means Tuesday we're going to get our reopening announcement from the provincial government. Ashley, are you and the Arts Club hoping that the opening announcement will include at least getting us back to that minimum number of 50 live humans in a theatrical venue? I could not have said it better myself. Thank you for summarizing it like that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> we met with them about a month ago. We are um, very keen to learn what the plan is. We're very hopeful that the start of the plan is bringing us back to um, the gatherings of 50 people, um, which we were able to um, have in the fall. And at that point, the Arts Club did three productions, very small productions, one-person shows um, right. with uh, 50 people there. And uh, it, it worked very well. We had all of the most strictest safety protocols in place with WorkSafe and with our industry protocol. You know, for example, people were wearing masks at the Arts Club. Everyone was wearing masks at the Arts Club before yep. it was a mandatory thing across the province. So really hopeful that that is part of the plan. But then we're also really hopeful that we will hear what are the markers or the milestones that um, this plan will lay out to um, increase capacity in a staged uh, version um, because we're hoping to, we want to understand when what the government and what public health is looking for in terms of 
bringing people back together so that we can plan uh, because our hope is that we're going to be back to doing you know regular size shows at the Stanley Theater hopefully by Christmas time um, so we're very very looking forward to hearing um, what's going to happen on Tuesday but I'd say yeah short term we're hoping to have audiences of 50 and then we're looking for more detail about what the long-term planning will be. You know, I don't think the the rest of the community, Ashley, has an appreciation for the kind of twisting yourselves into pretzels that the arts community did in terms of turning your venues into safe places for people to go and still appreciate the arts live. Uh, the safety precautions that were established at all those theaters, those community theaters and venues all over British Columbia were extremely stringent and incredibly yes. well enforced. Uh, the, the community the, the theater community realized, look, if we're going to survive, this is the only way it's going to happen. So let's do it right and, and be done with it. And so yeah. I, I, it was that it was even more shocking than when that turned out to be not enough, wasn't it? Well, I, I mean, I'd say like we're we're professional uh, performance venues, we're businesses, so safety always has to be at our forefront. You know, pre-pandemic, we've always thought about how do we keep our audience safe, how do we keep our mm-hmm. staff and our artists safe, and so um, yeah, so we we definitely we dug into the plans, we made sure that our venues were um, impeccably safe, and you know, and from our audience feedback, what most people were saying to us is they felt safer there than at the grocery store uh, exactly. because of the yeah. social distancing we had, because of the mask because of all of those things so you know we're really we'd really um uh right now live performance venues are grouped under this idea of community gatherings right. uh, and we're hopeful that public health will see us as what we truly are which is a business just like all the other businesses that you know that our government has worked really hard to make sure that that businesses can stay um open over the pandemic and i think we should commend you know the the work that's been done there but um, we also would love to be seen as a business because that is what we are as well. Indeed. And it was encouraging the other day when uh, when questioned during one of her daily briefings, Dr. Henry said uh, it was in a sports context, but nonetheless, it was a live audience question, Ashley. And Dr. Henry said, point blank, you know, I'd love to see a Canucks game this fall, wouldn't we all? Yeah. But the point, the point yeah. being that she sounded quite confident that come hockey season in October, that uh, that might very well be a possibility. Uh, the most confidence expressed by Dr. Henry in that regard, I've heard yet. So that's encouraging, don't I, you think? Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, you know, the, the game changer is the vaccination rollout that's been happening. And so, you know, at the Arts Club and, you know, all performing arts venues, like we want to do our part, you know, and if doing our part means that we you know, following the, following the public health protocols that have been laid out. And so for right now, that means not doing live performances. But hopefully, as more and more British Columbians and Canadians get vaccinated, um, uh, public health will feel more confident about gatherings coming together. And so that's what we're hopeful for and looking forward to hearing in the plan this week about, like, what, what are those milestones that public yeah. health and the government will be looking for? Because as I'm sure you can imagine, we've planned many things this year and we've thrown out many of those plans as we're trying to get back to financial sustainability, it is really these larger shows with larger audiences that do that for us. And planning larger shows with larger audiences takes um, much more lead time. And so that's what we're hopeful for. 
Indeed. Yeah. And in the meantime, uh, Ashley, you do have, uh, I mean, you've been doing all sorts of wonderful little vi- virtual things because that's what arts clubs and arts uh, groups do because they're instinctive performers. And by gosh, one way or another, we're going to get a performance on the internet. And so this time around, <laughs> it's an interesting twist. You've got three panels coming up in June, uh, about two weeks apart. The first one on June 1st. Tell us about what you've got planned here. This is interesting. Yes, yeah, so one of the things we've done this um, during this calendar year, well, we haven't had audience, audi- live audiences, is we've really pivoted to digital. So we have mm-hmm. audio plays that are online. Yep. And then we have also have um, a history podcast. So it's a five-part po- podcast that looks at the arts clubs, but also theater in Vancouver and Vancouver's history over the last 50 years. Um, you can find it on our website. It's called This Is Something Else, or you can find it on Spotify or iTunes. And we're very proud of it. And it's really, it's, we called it This Is Something Else because it's not what people expect. It's not like a dry, you know, list of dates and people's names and venues. Mm-hmm. Instead, um, Andrew Kushner, who created it, really has um, looked at relationships and themes and ideas that relate to history. And okay, so, we've got about know, a minute here. It. Tell us about the panels. Okay. I, I'm going to get, yeah. Jumping right into the panels, we love the podcast, but we know what we're all missing is gathering together and talking about things. So we have planned for three panels that are um, inspired by the podcast. They're happening in June. You can find out about them on the website, June 1st, 15th, and 29th. We have three amazing local artists who are facilitating them, Carmen Aguirre, Marie Farsi, and Omari Newton. And the themes are, the first one is Theatre as Agent of Social Change, the second one is Beyond Panels, the Radical BIPOC Creators Changing the Face of Canadian Theatre. And the third is Theatre Within Walls, the Battle for Venues in Vancouver. You can find out lots more information on the website, but they will be online panels. Those three amazing facilitators will have about two to three other panelists, and they'll be discussing those themes in context of Vancouver uh, history. Fast. Great stuff. Artsclub.com is the website that you've been alluding to all along, correct? Yeah, that's right. That's the one. All right. Ashley, thank you for this this morning. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk uh, in a few more weeks when we get some news and we have some plans to talk about, maybe even some live productions from the fall. Thank you for this today. Enjoy the rest of your holiday weekend. Thank you. You too. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.